Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended quote-unquote summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help Sarah Schaefer is a stand-up comedian and writer. She's also the author of Grand, a memoir. She was the co-host of MTV's Nikki and Sarah Live and has written for numerous television shows, including The Fake News with Ted Nelms and the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. Sarah's solo show, Little White Box, debuted to a sold-out run at the 2017 Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and her Comedy Central stand-up presents special premiered in 2019. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks. I am really excited to discuss your memoir, Grand. I also took a whitewater rafting trip when I was younger with my family. So (laughs) could you maybe tell everybody listening what your book is about and then what inspired you to even write a memoir? So Grand is a sort of inward and outward journey. For my 40th birthday, I went on a whitewater rafting trip in the Grand Canyon with my sister. It was like an eight-day, you know, 200 miles, very rugged outdoor adventure. And in the book, I chronicle the trip while also remembering basically what led me to the point of getting on that raft in that river from childhood with stories all the way up to that moment. And I always knew I wanted to write a book from a very young age. Before I even realized I wanted to be a comedian or anything else, I thought, I want to write a book. But this book in particular came about, you know, with the idea of there's a lot of stories from my life that I've never shared publicly before that felt more intimate and special to me and difficult that weren't really working yet. I hadn't even really tried, but to talk about on stage as a stand-up wasn't really the place for it, I think. So writing this book came from wanting to share that part of my life and some of my stories in a more in-depth, intimate way and a little more sincerity to it than what I do on stage, which is obviously trying to get as many laughs as possible. This book, I have room to breathe and be more emotionally vulnerable in a way that I don't do on stage. So That's kind of the short of it. (laughs) So was it cathartic for you to write about those times? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the story of first the book was going to be like kind of centering around my moral anxiety, which I do talk about in the book of like, am I a good person or am I a bad person? That's sort of like my life's quest is to figure out if I'm good or bad. And then later, much later in life, I realized that was such a flawed prison I had put myself in because no one is all good or bad. But how did I get to be that way? And, and the journey of my life up to that, up to now. And it's a pretty crazy story about my dad and, and my whole life changing at age 12, my whole family's life changing and a journey of redemption. My dad coming forward with some pretty scandalous news and us, our entire status in our hometown changing. My mom, our whole lives turned upside down. And I, at a young age, witnessed my own parents changing their lives, taking huge risks personally and repairing the damage and forgiveness. All those things were drilled into me, but I was too young to fully understand it. And so it's sort of the way I describe it in the book is that it was like a bone healing out of place in me of being extremely afraid of being morally wrong because I thought after the stuff that happened with my dad, you know, we were now on the right course. We were bad and now we're good. Before was bad, present is good. I mean, that set me up for a real, real shit show later on. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse my language, but yeah. Well, I feel like the stuff with your dad, I feel like you wrote about it in such detail and all those little memories and the day and them sitting you down and then filling in backstory that you learned later and the emotion and, and the uncertainty really. And yet you also took this sort of detached view of it, like you were an outsider yeah. looking in, which I thought was such an interesting sort of angle. Cause just tell me a little more about being at that age and going through something mm. that, you know, you weren't sure what to make of it. And your church background, I feel like was the frame of reference you were using for everything. Yeah, I was definitely very keen on what I was learning and and discovering at church, which was this concept of Christ being a source of unconditional love in all of your flawed, complicated glory, you know, and that forgiveness is such a tenet of the Christianity that I was taught. And redemption and all those things and baptism of like, you know, you're clean now. And those things just crystallized in me like, oh, this is the answer. And church was where we were welcomed after all this. You know, my dad and my mom lost a lot of their friends and their status in our town. And certain people took us in emotionally. And a lot of those people existed at my church. And there's still they are still people that I am in touch with and have been mentors to me, you know, and to my whole family. And that community was crucial at that time. And it set us on a path of staying together as a family and learning to get through it as opposed to running away or disappearing or hiding. We just had to get through it. And so I was 12, though. I was a teenager and I didn't want my parents anywhere near me. (laughs) I was like, oh, we solved it. We're good. Moving on. You know, I didn't want to dwell on it because I didn't have the emotional capacity as a 12 year old to really get into it. And it wasn't until years and years later and a lot of it during writing this book, because I discovered so much that I had never known talking to my father 
I really, we spent a lot of time talking that I'd never heard so many of the things that happened. We went into real detail about everything and it was really heartbreaking not being able to talk to my mom in this process. That was one of the hardest parts of writing the book was not being able to ask her questions. But yeah, that comes in phases. Forgiveness is not a simple, I don't trust people that go, I forgave you. I'm not mad. Like right after something has really bad has happened. I don't trust that because I know that feelings change over time and instant forgiveness is really not complete. You know, that it is a process and people's feelings can change my journey with my, I I use the word journey way too much when I talk about this book, Okay, (laughs) but that's what it is. But the voyage (laughs) of, of my relationship with my father has been the sort of unexpected part of this is like, you know, I wanted to write so much about my mom. You know, I love, I love and miss her so much. And she was such an incredible person. And I feel like I did a good job here, but it was just a scratching the surface. You know, I would love to write more about her and explore her story more, but I didn't expect so much healing and discovery to happen with my father, which was such a gift of being able to do this, that he trusted me enough to share with me and let me share with others. That's amazing. I mean, it's great to be able to reconceptualize things that have happened. And it's not always so clear, right? People who do things that, you know, not to go back into your right and wrong thing, good and bad or whatever, dichotomy. But if you do something that you shouldn't, it doesn't make you necessarily a bad person. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know. No, right. And we always joke, there's that show Bloodline. And the main character says, we're not bad people, but we did a bad thing. (laughs) My family uses that line sometimes as a joke. But yeah, I don't, it's been tough because I'm someone who's naturally, I got this from my mom, is being really empathetic to others. I'm lucky that I was taught empathy and, and especially after all that happened, you know, working, my mom working with houseless people in our town and and really going there. and, And she became dedicated to a life of service after all this happened. And She felt called and I don't know, I couldn't ask her for this. Was she thinking, this is how I make up for, I mean, because my mom didn't do anything wrong, but she felt she was part of it in that she blindly followed what my dad did. And, you know, I would love to talk to her about it now (laughs) just to like revisit. And, but, you know, anyway, you know, we've entered into a life of service as a family and I was taught to see my mom, the way my mom would describe it, you know, is that she saw God in everyone she met. And it was to serve someone, the lowest, most vulnerable person in your community is to serve God, you know, and that was how she viewed it. And so that was put into me a lot of lessons about empathy and, and not to assume, you know, people say empathy is always walking in someone else's shoes. It's like you'll never really be able to walk in someone else's shoes. Recognizing that first is the first step towards empathy is knowing you can't assume what's right for someone else, what their experience is like, but you can try to learn and listen and let them tell you. And my mom was very good at that. She wanted to meet a need. She never wanted to tell others what was going to fix their life. You know, she was like, what is it that you need? Right. And then she would try to meet that need. And I thought that that was so beautiful, but it has led me to sometimes be unable to recognize like actually really bad people at times. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because I'm like, but everyone has a story. Everyone has a, 
you know, if there was a reason for doing things that, you know, and then I look at someone, you know, perhaps a, per- a certain politician or not naming names, but, you know, like, or a really bad person in my life who's like hurting me over and over again, it sometimes has been hard for me to back off of that and go, you know, sometimes you just got to let somebody go. They're just hurting you. That's true. You know, you'll never fix or save or make it meet their need. You'll, you know. Yes. Anyway, that was a rambling answer, but. <laughs> I know that it's such good advice. And the only sort of tragedy to that advice is I feel like everyone has to learn it themselves anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like one of those pieces that you learn through experience. And yet, even if I tell like my best friend or my daughter or somebody, they'll be like, okay, yeah, yeah. But it's not going to stop them from doing the same mistakes, you know? So uh-huh. anyway. You have to learn you it have to on learn your it. own. Yeah. Well, that's what, I, yeah, in the book I talked about that. I think that's a good like connection to the relationship I have with my little sister of us protecting each other and wanting to fix things for the other. And you see that in the book happened in the Grand Canyon of our own little personal battles that we were having and not being able to help the other one fix it. You know, it's, it's really, I mean, you can support and you can listen and be there and that's what you need to be, but you can't force your way onto someone else's way. Well, I would do this. Well, that's, you know, that's not necessarily what's right for them or their way of doing things. So true. I loved also when you had the 5,000 staples, the box of staples, and you decided that like by the time they were empty, you had to have like achieved something in your wish list career of being a comedian. And then you finished the box and you were like, I better get out of here. Basically, (laughs) Tell me about that. I know. (laughs) The day job, my job when I went, moved to New York City to try and become a comedian, I didn't know at all how to do it. I didn't know what, I'd never even seen stand-up comedy in person before. I'd only seen it on TV. I had no idea what I was doing. So I go to New York. I'm like, I'm going to be a comedian. It's going to take six months. You know, like I didn't know anything. And I got a day job because I didn't have any money and I had to support myself. And New York is very expensive. I I remember thinking when I moved there that the salary that I was offered for my job was so much money. I was like, I'm rich. I had no idea (laughs) that it was like not enough. Yeah, that's your subway fare. There you go. (laughs) So I was like, that was barely enough to live off of, you know? So anyway, I was at this boring law firm job and my days were just spent in spreadsheets and with a really gross kind of creepy boss. And, you know, it was, I got all my early comedy was office humor because that was my life. And it was actually ended up being a great experience to write about in my early days of comedy because I didn't know what to write about. And I thought, I'll write about what's right in front of me while no one's looking. I'll be in my cubicle working on a, on something about this experience. But I was just, I think, anyone pursuing a creative career hits that wall at some point when they realize, oh my God, this is going to take so much longer than I thought it was going to take. And because you're, you're shown examples of people who are overnight successes and young success and at 30, we value youth, you know, 30 under 30, you know, all these things. But for many, it is a really long journey. And I think it's probably more rewarding to get there in a more organic way than, than some sort of overnight success, I would imagine. But I mean, the money would be nice, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think I hit that wall and I had these like box of staples and I made a little deal with my, I, w- I always made little deals. I would be like, 
if he's standing at the top of these stairs when I come out of here, he loves me. You know, I would do those deals yeah. like uh, almost like a he loves me, he loves me not. You know, if the phone rings right now, that's a sign from the universe. Like you know, and this this little deal with myself about the box of staples was like a motivator of like get out of here, get out of this day job, figure out a way to make money as an entertainer, comedian, writer, whatever. By the time this box of staples runs out, really didn't do the math and understand what, how many, I mean, I knew generally how many staples I would use a week. <laughs> so I thought I was making a pretty safe bet, but then like the, the 5,000 staples were gone and I was really depressed. I was like, and that, cause that was like, you know, and looking back, it was actually not that long. I actually had a quick turnaround there. <laughs> You're using a lot that, of staples. You just were flying through them. You know, well, and I was only at that job for five years, but it felt like an eternity at that age. You know, your early 20s, it was just like the clock was ticking. I was, you know, how am I going to do this? And I was so lucky I got this job. It was so weird. It was like hosting an online show for AOL, which existed then. And it was internet video and I was interviewing musicians. I thought, you know, oh, I've, I've made it. And I did. I mean, I had made it. I got to quit my day job. That's all I wanted was just to not work at that day job. I wanted my job to be being in the entertainment industry, a comedian, writer, whatever. I didn't care what it was. I'm like, just make me a part of it. And that sent me on my way. You know, I had some setbacks. I had to go back to the law firm job once the AOL thing got canceled. I mean, it was a real journey. Again, the word journey is let's, let's keep count. How many times <laughs> and then when did you decide then you were going to sort of interweave your whitewater rafting trip with your sort of family memoir of sorts? Well, it's crazy because I had this trip planned. You have to book them really far in advance to get your spot on the boats. So we probably had it booked over a year in advance. And I was already writing my book when I went on the Grand Canyon trip. I had no intention of writing about it. I mean, I'm not someone who's like, I don't seek out experiences for creative fodder. Like I'm pretty lucky in that I live in the moment with, I separate my career from my life, you know, mm -hmm, not like mm -hmm. going home for vacation for Thanksgiving and going, keeping a notebook. Like I'm not someone who does that. My stories that I tell from my life bubble up naturally. Like years later, I'll go, oh, that I should talk about that on stage. Like, I was like, I've been telling this story to friends as just a story. And I'm like, why didn't I think about turning? I've gotten better at like churning out material quicker, quicker turnaround and realizing when something funny happens and recognizing that could be something I write about. But the Grand Canyon thing was just strictly a trip for my birthday. And when I went on the trip, I was in the throes of getting like my first round of feedback about the book. And it was a mess, you know, and it was like, you got to figure this out. And I was like, oh, shit, like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so that was adding to my mental state when I went into the Grand Canyon. I didn't say that in the book because it would have been too meta. But, right, right. but then when I, I like a couple months later, I was dreading going back to work on the book. My deadline was approaching for a second draft and I was dreading it. And I thought, but the I just started thinking, God, what it needs is a really vivid story with stakes and place and, you know, all the five senses, like, because so much memory is so foggy and it's hard to write about memories that you're like barely sure you have a handle on. And I learned how to do it. But, but yeah, the, it suddenly occurred to me like, oh, I could, what if I, and I just had a little idea and I asked my editor and she's like, Kind of, I kind of like that. Give it a try. 
which is really scary when someone goes, give it a try. <laughs> because writing a book, I mean, I feel like I wrote three books because you, it was like almost a total, the second draft was a complete rewrite of the, it was like I started over. I mean, she, when they got my notes back, it was like only one chapter was, was like, this is good. <laughs> so it was rough. But yeah, we, I gave it a try. It took a long time. But what I turned in the next time was enough for her to go, yeah, this is working. You still have a ways to go, but this is the way you're telling this story is it lightens the Grand Canyon stuff, lightens the, the heavier stuff from my life. And there was just, that was when I was down in the Grand Canyon, that is what I was experiencing mentally. And all of it is connected to these stories from my past and the metaphor of the, I mean, it's like a writer's delight, you know, the uh, a canyon trip, a boat, a river, rocks, and, you know, it was all so fun to write about. That part was pretty easy. <laughs> awesome. Well, I thought it was great. I mean, I thought, like, the intersection of those two experiences and going back and forth worked really well. And it's something that you might not necessarily think to do. Like, I wouldn't necessarily think to frame something that way, and yet it was so effective in the storytelling and even and pushing both narratives along through the, you know— the river yeah, pushing exactly. the... Exactly. Like, you know, we had to go through it. Exactly, exactly. Go around it. You, had to, you know, like, oh. Yeah, we Sorry. were laughing. Yeah, like, I'll stop. You know, yeah, we were laughing whenever I would talk to my editor, you know, about the book. We would be finding ourselves accidentally speaking in metaphors yeah. that were related to the to the flow. Oh, it flows really well here. It was like, I had to kind of pull back on it sometimes. I'm like, there's too much. Like it's, it's getting obnoxious in the book. <laughs> but I had some people really be very encouraging and I've never done this before. And they were like, it's okay to be on the nose sometimes and to hold our hand a little the transitions between the canyon and the life chapters, I was very particular with those that it wasn't too heavy handed, but it was like a nod going, and now we're talking about this. And weaving those together was pretty challenging, but it took a while to, I felt like I was wrestling a bear to the <laughs> ground. Like, after a while, just like, how do I fucking make this? And, you know, I had to cut so much and you don't know, you think, oh, every time I sat down to work on the book again, I would be overwhelmed and dreading it and just sick. You know, it was like I was going back into like a Chernobyl, <laughs> like, like, I don't want to go back in there, you know, and I would, I would thrash and not want to do it. And then, but once you get going, you're on your way and, and you just, you have to do it. So what, now that you've survived this process, which you made sound so enjoyable, what do you have coming next? Like, what are you up to from the comedy side? What are you up to from the writing side? It's been surreal. I've been anticipating this release of this book for so long, and I didn't think it would happen the way it has happened at all, obviously. And, but I'm healthy and my family is healthy. And by the way, i I've been following you on Instagram. I'm so sorry about your mother-in-law. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, very much sending you love. Thank um, you. I appreciate that. Anyway, sorry to bring that up. No, it's <laughs> fine. Blue. I'm glad. Um, no, it's fine. I'm very open yeah. about it. It's fine. Yeah. And I'm glad you are because people need, a lot of people are going through this right now and you sharing helps other people. And even someone who, I don't have anyone currently in a hospital suffering from COVID or anything like that, but reading about your experiences just undermines, you know, what this experience is really like. We can't forget it. It's still in the, we're still in the middle of it. It ain't over yet. It's very real. 
Yeah. Easy to start relaxing and being like, oh, I'm not going to think about it today. And it's like, you know, anyway, You're right. back to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, back to you. Go ahead. Sorry. That's okay. The pandemic has been made it very weird. I had anticipated a book tour and then I was planning a stand-up tour for the fall. I'd started working late last year on all new stand-up material, new jokes. I was going to start working on a like a solo show, maybe inspired by the book. I was, I was still figuring it out, but that all went to shit. And so now I've just been very lucky. I've been getting some writing jobs for TV shows that are in production during the pandemic. I've written for a few specials. Like there's been some like a graduation special, you know, where Obama spoke. I didn't, I didn't get to write for Obama personally, but I wrote for the special. And it's been really, I've been very grateful that the kind of TV writing I've done has put me in, like, I guess, I would you call it the stable of writers who do like comedy variety type shows that are actually more lightweight to produce during the pandemic. So I've been overwhelmed with work at times where it's like, I, you know, can say no to things, which is not what I expected when all this started. I mean, Hollywood shut down and we didn't know what was going to happen. So now I'm looking forward to that this book is out in the world. It's like a baby I've put out there in the in the little basket in the river and just sent it down the river and let it let it live and now I really want to start working on I think just looking forward to post pandemic life when I do I I'm starting to really miss performing in front of a live audience and what does that look like when I get out there and I feel like this book is such a new people have always known me to be a more like I don't know how you, a storyteller, but like a little more sincere and heart. I'm not afraid to get emotional and sappy and stuff. And I'm thinking about making my live performance a little more to return to those roots of wanting to just tell stories as opposed to punchline, punchline, punchline. Mm -hmm. And maybe being a little deeper on stage than I have been before because I feel like after writing this book, I can do anything. Totally. <laughs> no, you just gave some advice <laughs> to authors, but maybe on more of a positive note. What advice would you have for somebody else out there who wants to write a memoir and maybe doesn't know how yeah, to attack well, it? Or that's, you know, yes, it is very difficult to write a book of any kind, I think. Memoir is particularly challenging in its own ways because you're going to have to dig deep and face things about yourself and potentially have a lot of fear. I had a lot of fear around what is my family going to think? What are people who are in this book going to think? Worrying a lot about hurting people. Some people don't worry about that kind of thing. I did. It all worked out okay so far. Good. But as hard as it is, like I just said, now I feel like I can do anything and I do think it's worth it to learn a discipline like this of a really, when you take on a really big project, it, it requires such a commitment and a practice, which is something that I had never really done in this way before. And it's helped me figure out how to get over writer's block. And now I trust the process more. Whereas before I would dread things and put it off and put it off and just be in a tailspin. And now I have faith of like, oh, it's okay to write for just 20 minutes in one day. And that's all I could do. But I did something and not to beat myself up that the next day is another day. And tomorrow I might write for 10 hours straight, you know, and to have faith that it will come. And also, I think what I've learned is discovering how good your writing can get when you open yourself up to other people's feedback 
especially when it's personal. Like I, I don't, you know, I'm usually a loner. I, I, I write for TV and I collaborate with other people, but I, for my own stuff, I'm like, I don't want anybody helping me with my jokes. And a lot of comedians collaborate, they help each other. And I've always been like, no, I'm, I'm on my own. But now I'm like, man, you know, you're better with the help of others and other ears. And it's worth that risk, personal risk to put, because if, if the goal is to have the book out there, you're going to have to get used to it. <laughs> you know, it's right. like, so sharing it with some people early on, I shared the book manuscript with some very close friends early on. And then you have editors, you know, you have, and then the process, it gets into more and more hands and you're getting more and more feedback. And I learned to welcome it and love it because by the end I was like, God, I'm, I sound so much smarter than I am because <laughs> all these people helped, you know, as part of the process, which was amazing. That's great. So I think it just, don't give up. That's my advice. Love it. Sarah, thank you. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're in a crazy time right now. And I just thank you for what you put out in the world. It's it's really beautiful and authentic. I love it. I'm a new fan. I'm so glad. I love doing what I do. I think it I think you could probably tell, but this is like the highlight of my day, honestly. Yeah. I, mean, okay, I love my good. kids and we're having a great day, but yeah. I'm just saying like, you know, yeah. this is Mommy like- needs a break. Uh, it's, it's great. It's, a, it's amazing. It's an escape for me too, so. Good. <laughs> but thank you for well, saying thank that. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day Book Blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.